A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on June 2nd, 2021. I can't believe it's June already. Our guest today is criminal defense attorney Philip Hamilton, who practices in New York and is a partner at Hamilton Clark. Welcome, Philip. Thank you so much for having me. We are so happy to have you. We've had your partner on before, Lance, so this is great. I have a feeling we're going to go through the whole firm before we're done by the end of the year. (laughs) Well, we have the associates and we have the partners for you, so we'll just keep stringing them through. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, we've got some, some disturbing cases this week, and we also have a wild update. So this is a case... We just want to let everyone know we're going to talk about this one. We have an update on a case you all have been following. Um, Many people who watch and listen to this podcast are obsessed with the Lori Vallow case. Well, she's accused of killing her two children. She has just been ruled mentally unfit to stand trial. I know a lot of you have strong opinions about her. She's a doomsdayer. She's had all sorts of crazy theories out there. So I can't wait to hear your opinions. We're going to talk about that in a bit. But first... This is the case of a 14-year-old boy who has been charged as an adult after allegedly stabbing to death a 13-year-old girl. The girl was stabbed 114 times. Philip, what kind of rage does it take for such a young person to stab another person more than 100 times? I think it takes rage, honestly, at a very clinical level, Um, one in which, you know, an examination from just a mental standpoint, an emotional standpoint is going to have to be conducted to understand what exactly would lead someone to not just kill someone, but essentially this was an overkill, you know, as we understand it. And to the extent that we're dealing with over 49 defensive wounds, right, we're dealing with a girl that was pleading for her life, essentially, and fighting for her life. And still, nevertheless, you know, we just had stab after stab after stab. Whatever ultimately happened to her is a tragedy. And in terms of the rage that underlied her killing, um, it is at a level that's unimaginative, um, but one that certainly needs to be explored, particularly from the defense perspective. It It's shocked this community of Northern Florida. This is an area that is quite quiet. And what is surprising is that in St. John's County, they didn't even have a juvenile defense uh, excuse me, a juvenile jail or or the housing for someone like this that tells you what kind of community it is, that these things don't happen that often, that they don't have the facilities to even house um, a juvenile offender. So it, it, it's shocking to the community. It is shocking to anyone, especially since they are schoolmates. They went to the same school, one's 13, one's 14. They are essentially the same age. You know, this is the age of innocence, not right. not the age of murder, not the age of murder. So, um, you know, the, the savage beating, the savage beating is, I think, what everyone is. And I, I say beating, even though it was stabbing, but it's right. the, the whole thing is savage to me. Um, right. So the victim is 13-year-old Tristan Bailey. She was a cheerleader, a competitive cheerleader and a seventh grader. She was murdered on Mother's Day, May 9th. Her parents reported her missing, and then a few hours later, her body was found. This happened in the otherwise quiet community of St. John's County, Florida, which is not far from Jacksonville, Florida, near St. Augustine along the coast. 14-year-old Aiden Fucci is accused of killing her. Now, originally, when he was arrested, he was charged with second-degree murder. But since then, he has been indicted by a grand jury. The charges have been brought up to murder one. The prosecutor says this was indeed premeditated. And the prosecutor has said, along with the sheriff, he will be tried as an adult. So, Philip, I feel like we've gone through waves in this country of having uh, young offenders being treated and tried as adults and then kind of a bit of a shift 
on whether that actually worked or not. What is the thinking behind whether you charge someone as an adult? And is there ever an age limit at which prosecutors can make that decision? I mean, generally from a constitutional perspective, you're dealing with the ability to be able to charge younger adolescents as adults. And from a constitutional perspective, that is legal. Um, You're not dealing with cruel and unusual punishment at that point. And ultimately, the state uh, or the government has the means to move forward as charging an adolescent as an adult. What we have seen somewhat when we talk about this shift and what we have seen somewhat and when we talk about just the general trends in terms of prosecuting younger adolescents as adults, we've also seen up at the Supreme Court, right? When we think back to 2012, uh, when we think about Miller v. Alabama and the Supreme Court at that point, very clear outlined the fact that, you know, adolescents were not allowed to be sentenced to life without parole, right? And with that decision, you had a lot of states that amended a lot of their laws and it took into account a lot of the decision making and rationale that went into the Supreme Court's ultimate opinion in Miller v. Alabama, which was that the adolescent mind is just not properly formed at that point. I mean, to your point, Anna, when you talk about innocence, when you talk about not even having to think about the fact that we need a juvenile jail for a beating this savage, for a death that was ultimately that savage, it's because ultimately the adolescent mind generally is not at that level, but to the extent that it is, it certainly isn't defined in a way for culpability standpoint as concerns you know, adults who are prosecuted for these crimes. But what's happened, and you know, sometimes we talk about when elections have consequences, the now change within the Supreme Court within the last few years, we have different justices that were there that were there for Miller v. Alabama. In Jones v. Mississippi, right, Brett Kavanaugh made it very clear that it's not unconstitutional for someone under 18 years old to be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And so when that tone is set, these kinds of prosecutions, well, to the extent that ultimately the state of Florida finds it in its interest to hold this kid potentially in jail for the rest of their life, Well, ultimately, from a constitutional perspective, they now have the license to do so. So it may make a state or a prosecutorial authority just more willing to bring these kinds of charges, particularly when you're dealing with a case that's, you know, as you noted, as savage as this one. And I I don't want anyone to think that uh, in our discussion here about the legality and and what could possibly happen as this case goes forward, no one is suggesting that if indeed this young man is guilty because he is innocent until proven guilty, Absolutely. that he should not be punished to the fullest extent of the law. I, I This was savage. If he, indeed, if he indeed did this, um, I always advocate, um, obviously, um, for justice. And it's always up to a jury to, to decide what justice is in this case. But I, I do believe that sometimes there are external forces that um, play into cases and and what happens when you go for that charge? And sometimes it flips things upside down, either in appeals or or other motions that you don't see coming sometimes. So uh, thank you for your perspective on that and what that could mean in this case, because clearly the prosecutor, the victim's family and the sheriff absolutely want full, full prosecution on this. So it, it will you know be interesting it. to see. Um, what happens in this case. So let's talk a little bit more about the details of the case. The two young teens attended the same school, Patriot Oaks Academy in idyllic St. Augustine, Florida. If you've ever been there, it's just a little piece of paradise. It's a quiet little sweet piece of paradise. Um, I also want to play a clip from the St. John's Sheriff, Rob Hardwick. He talked to Channel 4 in Jacksonville, Florida, And he has some very strong feelings and emotions, obviously, about the alleged perpetrator. So let's play that clip. This is a cold-blooded murder of a 13-year-old young girl who did not deserve to die. There's no, the word accident is nowhere involved in this case. I can just tell you that the man is a cold-blooded killer. And I hate to say man, he's a a child, but he committed a man's crime. I find it very interesting that the sheriff is making absolutely clear that this was no accident. He's making it clear from his perspective and the investigation that it's not like something just happened and got out of control. He is saying, and so is the prosecutor, that it was premeditated and that there was intention that she may very well have been lured 
into a situation in which Aiden could have done this to her. And there are statements that have been revealed by police in the investigation that the young man made a few weeks earlier, how he wanted to kill someone, that he wanted to get someone into the woods. And if he said that a few weeks earlier to his friends, and then it actually happens a few weeks later, Philip, what do you think that means to this case? I mean, for the defense, those are very damaging statements. Um, I mean, they're highly relevant and they go ultimately to not just a what happened, because within the statements, there's almost a prediction and a prophecy of what's going to happen, but also a who did it, right? And to the extent that you're a defense attorney and you're coming on to this case, dealing with those kinds of statements in conjunction with, as you noted, just the pure brutality, right? The fact that this is a man's crime um, more so than a teenager's crime it's it's a tough uphill battle. Nevertheless, I think some of the other implications that come from it is, you know, in one of the areas where the state is going to have to focus its resources and its investigation, as we start to understand more about why did this happen to the extent that there even is an understanding of why or why ultimately, you know, it was Tristan as opposed to anyone else. What ultimately would lead a 14-year-old boy short of, again, some of the potential mental health-related issues that may, you know, come out ultimately, but what nevertheless would lead you to, you know, just stab someone over 100 times? Is there something there that potentially the defense can try to make some argument about a, you know, emotionally disturbed teenager, something that in some way can undercut the element of intention, right? To show that this wasn't so much intentional. This was like a young man that for whatever reason, just simply lost it in that moment. And in that moment could not control his actions. Of course, that's always the defense that is, you know, from a public perspective, fretted upon. But from a legal perspective, if you're kind of coming in as a defense attorney and trying to explain what happened with this kid, it is certainly an avenue that you have to explore because it's just really unthinkable right? For anyone in their sane mind and anyone that's coming from a rational perspective to think that something like this could happen. So to the extent that you're the criminal defense attorney, you certainly have an obligation to try to give some explanation outside of rationality as to why it happened. But of course, for the state, um, you know, this particular defendant's statements make things a little easier in terms of proving premeditation and intention when weeks prior, he's essentially prophesizing the crime. Yeah. And so far, no motive has been revealed. And frankly, there may not be a motive. That's that's the other thing with this case. We don't know. Now, Aiden Fucci has appeared in court. This this first appearance was handled virtually. Again, the prosecutor said that um, it was premeditated. Let's go back to the day that Tristan Bailey disappeared because some things happened and there's some additional evidence that helps to tell this story. Tristan was last seen shortly after midnight in her Durban Crossing neighborhood. When she didn't come home, that's when her parents called the police and then the police went out in force and and, uh, volunteers and neighbors, everybody went out and her body was found in a retention pond off a cul-de-sac in the very same subdivision. And it was about a half a mile from Aiden's house. She was found about 6 p.m. on Mother's Day. Now, surveillance cameras indicate the following, that the, according to the arrest report, the deputies were able to get a hold of security video that shows the two teens walking east on Saddlestone Drive around 1.45 a.m. So she was last seen by her parents around midnight, was like, you know, go out, hang out with some friends. It was the weekend you know, not probably leaving the subdivision every, you know, you expect everything is going to be safe. The video then shows that only one person is walking back in the opposite direction on the same road going west at 3.27 a.m. Tristan's body was located near this area on Mm. Saddlestone Drive. Mm. Okay, this to me, what I'm about to describe, and hopefully we're going to show this for those of you who are watching, to me is incredibly disturbing, very disturbing. Not that what has happened isn't horrible, but this just, this just takes it up a notch for me. So while the search for Tristan is going on, Aiden 
takes a selfie in the back of a police patrol car. And he's, you know, doing the peace sign with one hand. Then he captions the photo saying, hey, guys, has anybody seen Tristan lately? Question mark. Police have confirmed that is Aiden in the photo. Sure looks like Aiden. It was on his Snapchat account. That, to me, is chilling. That is chilling. That is almost like, you know, a one of those to the victim. I just, I'm just so deeply disturbed by that. Now, in a criminal case, does that photo and that caption have value or is it just something that upsets us, obviously, because of what's happened to Tristan? The value is not only immense, um, I, I can't even qualify how damning a photo like that in the back of a police car would ultimately be for a criminal defendant that's in Aiden's position. Because to the extent that there was any defense prior in terms of for whatever reason, who done it, right? We know that we saw within the video footage of the one person that was walking back from the wooded area as opposed to the two who went into it. The clothing on that particular individual was consistent with clothing that was found within Aiden's home. So there's another piece of damning evidence. But when you then add upon that, this callousness to take a picture in the backseat of a police car, essentially admitting to the crime, but not just admitting to the crime, allowing yourself no empathy. Remember the part of the discussion we were just having, Anna, when we're talking about, well, maybe there's some underlying issue that could go to the fact that he's not as culpable because of like a mental health related issue. When you do stuff like that and essentially say, peace, you know, has anybody seen Tristan? What you're doing is taking any empathy away from your defense to the extent that even if there is some underlying mental health related issue there that may be able to help you, let's just be frank, Anna, no juror is going to care. Right. Like to the extent that ultimately you're showing that you don't care. Why should we believe that even if we ultimately let you off because of some mental health related issue that you're going to care enough to go and get yourself treated, that you're going to care enough to make sure that if you ultimately do find some way to see the light of day again, that this won't happen again. Those kinds of photos are generally the kinds of photos that in a prosecution summation are just playing in the backdrop. No different than these windows behind me. They'll have a picture of that photo up just to show that this particular criminal defendant, Aiden, doesn't care. So it's, it's, it's quite damning and it certainly um, doesn't help. And when we talk about what is its value, very high. Yeah. And just to, again, just so, so disturbing to me, so disturbing, the callousness, the additional callousness of it. And um, as you mentioned, when they searched Aiden's house with a search warrant, they found clothes that matched what they saw on the surveillance video. The other thing, something very interesting, you know, in the first video, you see two people. In the second video, you only see one coming back, and that's the one who appears to be Aiden, according to authorities. But what's interesting is that he's holding a pair of shoes, and his mother recalls that when Aiden got home, he had his shoes off, and he told his mother that's because his feet hurt. And that's that, again, is very, very specific, very specific, because he probably, Aiden, wouldn't have known at that time, nor would his parents have known at the time that they were initially questioned, that there was video or that there would be video right. to show something so unbelievably specific that it, could, it couldn't be a coincidence and it couldn't be random. Right. And, you know, those are the kinds of just to the extent, you know, whether you're on the prosecution, whether you're on the defense in any given case, preparing for any given trial, there's always going to be, you know, for the most part, some piece of evidence that just breaks the case for both sides, whether one side knows like, hey, we're not going to be able to move forward in terms of thinking through objectively any victory here. This is a problem. And for the defense, when you combine the statement to mom, who to the extent that she's telling this to the police, we expect most mothers to be quite biased for their children in these kinds of investigations. But I think to your point, because she didn't know ultimately that these you know, shoes and his hurting feet were going to play such a critical part after that surveillance video was found within this case, um, I, I think it just goes to the authenticity and the credibility 
of what we ultimately know is going to be the prosecution's theory, that that was Aiden. That's ultimately depicted on the video. Even if we can't, you know, from a CSI perspective, zoom all the way in and find the certain points on the face within the surveillance video and match it up with Aiden's, the shirt, to the extent that it is comparable to a shirt that was found in his house, the issue with the shoes, and then just taking it back to, again, the, you know, kind of callous photo within the uh, police cruiser, it just makes it a tough case for the defense. But I think on the same end, it does give the defense its grounds to argue that you know there must be something wrong with this kid. Like, this is not just a normal, reasonable, rational kid. There is an underlying issue. You know it and I know it. We need to kind of get past the part to the extent that we can about just so retributively trying to, like, you know, take care of this kid for what ultimately he is alleged to have done to Tristan. And, you know, more importantly, just kind of look to see whether or not the state can legally make their case that with intention and with premeditation, you know, Aiden committed this crime. And, you know, that's going to be a big challenge for the defense in this case. But it's really their only route because they're with every statement and with every piece of video and every, you know, word that you and I are having right now. And in this conversation, it's quite tough of a case for the defense to think that, you know, in any way, you know, Aiden's going to walk. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's a tough case and it's, it's a really sad situation. Absolutely. And additionally, uh, police say that some items which they found in Aiden's home show uh, a presence of blood that, of course, has to be positively identified as to whose blood it is. So still more forensics right. to come on this. The presumed weapon, a buck knife typically used for hunting, was recovered from the pond where her body was found. Of course, more testing needs to be done to make sure um, that was the weapon and what kind of DNA is on it. I mean, if it's got her DNA and his DNA on it, that also is going to be very damning. So Aiden was, like we said, initially held in a juvenile detention center, but it was at a different county. And then he's been transferred back to St. John's County, but he's being held separately from all of the adults in that jail, understandably so. And, you know, the prosecutor said that Aiden absolutely intended to kill someone by taking them into the woods. That was his statement. That's what Aiden intended to do. And based on this crime scene, it seems like certainly someone has done that. Also, the authorities have made it clear Aiden is the only suspect in this case. If convicted, he could face life in prison, which will be interesting to see what happens because of his age. And, but in Florida, because of his age, he is not eligible for the death penalty, and they still have the death penalty in Florida. So that yes. will not happen because of his age, no matter what changes. He is scheduled to be arraigned on June 10th, and we will be watching this case like we do so many others here on True Crime Daily. Now over to Idaho, where a court-approved clinical psychologist has determined that Lori Vallow the woman who is accused of murdering her two children and then burying their remains in a pet cemetery is not competent to stand trial after being charged with first degree murder. Okay, Philip, this is a case which so many people have been obsessed over for so long because it's been drawn out for so long. And what to me is fascinating is Lori Vallow is now deemed incompetent to stand trial. But this is a woman who for years went on with her doomsday scenarios that when the apocalypse happened, she would come back as God. So mm. what I'm trying to figure out is, okay, she sounded like either someone who was a con artist or someone who was delusional. And now the fact that she's been deemed incompetent, mentally incompetent to stand trial, what happens now? What do you do with this? You know, the interesting thing is, Anna, and you have to remember this, you know, Idaho doesn't have an insanity defense that's recognized by statute or by law. So as of right now, essentially what happens is the case just gets put into a holding pattern, waiting ultimately for 
the competency to come back if ever. But, you know, to the extent that you are someone who thinks that after the apocalypse, uh, you're coming back as God. I don't necessarily know to the extent that your competency ever comes back to the extent that it was ever there. But the way that generally, you know, competency is defined when you're thinking through, is someone competent to stand trial as opposed to, you know, are they not? It doesn't have so much to do with, do you have a mental health disorder or not, which we know this woman does. It has more to do with, do you understand the nature of the proceedings that are occurring around you? And to the extent that you understand that you are in trial, even if you think you're coming back as God in a different life, if you understand that that's the judge, if you understand that that's the prosecutor, these are witnesses that are coming in, that's really the bare bone standard by which ultimately this case moves forward, if ever. Um, and so at this point, essentially, the state is just going to have to wait um, and or, you know, to the extent that she's receiving some sort of therapy or some sort of assistance to gain enough of a competency that the court is ultimately satisfied that she knows what's going on. Now, as you noted, she may be a con artist as well. Um, and to the extent that she is, nevertheless, um, the court is going to have to be satisfied that it's not just her con artist side of things that are playing things out. But that she, you know, actually mentally understands what's going on with respect to the process. So we'll just have to see. I think it's possible. I do not know. But my suspicion is that she's faking it. And what do you do with a situation like that? Now, that does not, that does not rule out the possibility of mental health issues here. I don't mm -hmm. doubt Absolutely. I don't doubt that, that there's a lot going on here. But this is a woman who managed for an awfully long time and is accused of being in all sorts of situations where people just mysteriously died, including some of her exes, uh, her new husband's also ex. I mean, there's just a lot of people dying mysteriously who come in contact with this woman. So there's a part of me that says, Oh, give me a break. Really? Out of all of the people, out of all of the cases that we do here on True Crime Daily, and so many of them, you think, oh, they're going to try and pull the insanity defense. Or I realize this is before an insanity mm -hmm. defense since it doesn't exist in Idaho. It, and so here we go. Everything's on hold because now someone has determined that she has no clue as to what's going on in the courtroom. And I have to tell you, I'm just having a hard time buying that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Anna, and, and, and not practicing in Idaho, you know, I do, I've been practicing long enough to understand sometimes the way the politics come to play within the judiciary. So let's just kind of play this all the way out, even to the extent that she is faking it. Sometimes, right, in order to protect a record, Right. When we're talking about like the trial record, the trial transcript, when we're thinking about appeal later, what if ultimately the judge hadn't ordered this? OK, what if he hadn't ordered the fact that at this juncture, she's not competent to stand trial, even if in the back of the judge's mind, the judge knows in about four to six months, the judge is going to issue an order that she is competent. But nevertheless, in a way to just protect the record, you say, hey, she's not competent. Let's get her evaluated. Once you do that subsequent round of evaluations. Now you as the judge have a foundation to stand upon and say, eh, actually, you know, based upon this other expert, now you're good to go. I did my part as the judge in terms of like making sure that the trial process was protected. And so now ultimately we can move forward with me as the judge knowing that I'm safe, that this case isn't going to come back on appeal because some judges up in the, you know, appellate circuit or at the Supreme Court are going to say, well, she wasn't competent at that point. So now you have to try the whole case all over again. So, you know, sometimes like the judges play politics, too. It's a dirty secret in the game of law. But to the extent that ultimately this happens, that may be a reason behind it, even if she is faking it. Yeah. And it does make sense, the the context that you're giving us, that everyone kind of in the back of their heads has been thinking, geez, is this woman like nuts? Because look at the crazy stuff she talks about and look right. at all the stuff that, you know, she's, you know, this whole doomsday stuff. So it is very possible. You're kind of like addressing that elephant in the room. Everyone's been wondering, yep. is this woman <laughs> really okay? Is she delusional or is she just evil? Or so, so I guess this is a way of hitting it head on. Okay, 
let's have her evaluated. The initial response is, yeah, she's definitely not competent right now, but the, um, the licensed clinical psychologist who conducted this evaluation has, re- has recommended something called restorative treatment. It's a legal term. So perhaps you can explain this is a legal term for therapy that's done when there's an ex, an expectation that the condition will improve in a reasonable time frame. What does that mean? It is just a long euphemism for exactly what we I, were just talking about in terms of just kind of the politicization of this. It is, okay, she's not competent now, but because we see that there may be this ability to become confident, we put you through the process. It's then signed off that you went through the process and everybody's protected. Everybody's covered. And then to the extent that, again, that record ends up going up on appeal to the extent that she's convicted of any number of these crimes, right? And any, you know, found responsible for any number of these deaths that have occurred around her, it at least puts the trial court in a position where the trial court could say, hey, I did what I had to do. You know, to the extent that I found that she wasn't competent, she went through the restorative process, and then she was. And then the appeals court can sign off on that too. So sometimes, you know, with these kinds of cases where you receive so much publicity and where they are quite heavy cases, that you certainly as a trial judge don't want coming back to your court on round two and then you have to try the whole thing over again. You just check off a lot of boxes to protect yourself so that when ultimately, if a conviction comes, which in this case, you know, I haven't been on, you know, this case and reviewing it as much as, you know, a lot of other people, including I know a lot of the fans of the show, at the end of the day, um, it just puts the court in a position where it can just say, hey, you know, we protected ourselves, we did what we had to do. And to the extent that a conviction appears likely and it happens, at least then it's not coming back on appeal. So, you know, that just kind of explains some of the process just in terms of how we see it on the legal side and how sometimes politically it plays out. This reminds me of a case um, a long time ago in New York, but it'll probably you'll remember it. There was the head of a crime family who was being accused of all sorts of things, as you can imagine, in organized crime. And he used to stand in Little Italy in his bathrobe, um, you know, with his pajamas underneath, standing on the street and pretending to be babbling. And he was trying to convince the judge that, um, you know, he was senile because we didn't even use the term, you know, Alzheimer's or anything at that time. And there was video of him all the time outside, just walking around, mumbling to himself, trying to prove to the court that he was not competent. Well, that was in New York and they didn't buy it. (laughs) But I always think of this old man in his bathrobe (laughs) trying to convince the world and the judge. It's like, I'm getting away with this one. No one's ever going to believe it. I'm crazy. No. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I always think. Yeah, I mean, it's a rare happenstance. It's a very rare happenstance, Anna, like when a court actually finds someone actually incompetent to stand trial. Here in New York, we actually call it 730. So that's what that particular crime family associate was trying to get uh, criminal procedure law section 730. Even a lot of just the normal criminal defendants know that particular provision. And it's just like, oh, you know, let me try to see if I can get 730 or, you know, he got 730 in that he or she is just not competent to stand trial. So you had a little gamesmanship there that the judge clearly in New York didn't buy, but that, you know, here in Idaho, the judge is saying, whatever, you know, let me just... (laughs) sign off on it this one time. She's going to come back restored. And then we're moving forward with this case. Okay. So we're just going to go over some of the case for those who may not be familiar. I know most of you could like do this podcast. We could get out of our seats. Y'all could sit down and tell this case so much better than us. But um, we also want to go over the charges that she and her husband are facing. So on May 25th, prosecutors announced first degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder charges against Lori Vallow, who's 47 years old, and her latest husband, Chad Daybell, for the deaths of Lori Vallow's two children, Tylee Ryan, who was 16, and Joshua, who was referred to as JJ, who was seven years old. So that that is what they are facing. But there's even more because when you look at Chad and you look at Lori, each of them has at least one spouse who has died mysteriously, you know, before these two got together. So now there are investigations into those mysterious deaths that were apparently overlooked. And I always find this interesting. If you just look at one thing independent of others, sometimes it just seems like, oh, 
the person died in their sleep. But then when you step back and you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together and you start thinking, is there a black cloud over these two? Does calamity follow them wherever they go and everyone that that crosses their path ends up dead? Again, I do not believe in coincidence when it comes to murder. So, um, okay, just just putting it out there. So according to NBC affiliate 12 News, the ruling came down of the charges against them um, on the same day that police in Chandler, Arizona, I know this is when we start to get very confusing here, announced that it would be submitting a conspiracy to commit first-degree murder against Lori in the death of her fourth husband, Charles Vallow. Okay, so 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 we've got another case outside of Idaho that she's now going to be facing. Um, for those of you who don't know, Lori Vallow really went on and on about her doomsday scenario. This was a big thing. The man she ends up marrying, Chad Daybell, wrote books about it, the apocalypse. Um, some of it was loosely based on uh, some Mormon theories. And um, so, Ch- so Chad Daybell, who's also charged and sitting in prison, but he's so far deemed competent, even though he wrote crazy books. Um, his wife mysteriously dies in her sleep. Very sad. I mean, really sad because what ends up happening is he, the minute that poor woman, Tammy, is dead, he marries this woman, Lori Vallow. And then that's, I mean, that's when even more horrible things allegedly happen. So, uh, I mean, can you can you just imagine? Um, all right, so there's that going on. And then, of course, there are the two children. So the children were last seen in September of 2019. That's how long this case has been going on for, this investigation. They don't show up where they're supposed to at school. The family gets very concerned. Finally, the family manages to convince authorities to do welfare checks. Ultimately, Lori and new husband, Chad Daybell, go to Hawaii. And they're in Hawaii, but the kids are not with them. So the authorities show up there, do a knock-knock, say, where are the children? And she's like, oh, they're like wherever. But she has an answer for it, but they're clearly not in the house. They're given something like one month to produce the children. Now, I would think by this time... This has gone on for way too long. I mean, I honestly feel that the delay in trying to get to the bottom of what happened to those kids was a disservice to the victims, to the children in this case. Then the two of them, right? So it's the knock, knock, where are the kids? You got to show them by the end of the month. Then the two of them disappear again, right? They're on the run. They're gone and still no kids. Um, She was charged, though, with desertion. Um, and with non-support of the children, but nothing else early on. So that's how they, you know, we're starting to chase these two. In June of 2020, okay, now this has gone on for a year. Mm. Chad is taken into custody after the remains of Lori Vallow's children are found buried on his property. Horrible, just horrible. And that's, you know, when the, when the couple was charged, Now, additionally, the couple is now charged with conspiracy to commit murder in the death of Chad Daybell's wife, Tammy, the one who died in her home. She died back in October of 2019. Okay. I mean, and I, and I know I'm like jumping all over the place, but this is like one of those cases where you've got, you literally have the mysterious deaths of former spouses in various states in the, in various states. Uh, besides the two children who are confirmed dead. So um, Tammy's death, this is Chad's. Does this sound like a crazy story like that, that the neighbor would be telling you? And then Chad's wife, right? It, it, it sounds like a movie. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm listening like with just the, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat and I know what happened <laughs> and still just like hearing it. It's, it's just, it's ridiculous. Like to the point, your point, Anna, coincidence at a certain point just doesn't have a place. In a certain set of facts, and here, coincidence—it's—it's—it's tough company if it wants to hang around and in any way try to play a part in explaining what ultimately happened. But yeah, I I let you take it from here. My goodness, I just again the injustice to all the 
to the to the victims that we know of and then those who we believe may have been murdered the the injustice to them and the disrespect to them because everyone's like oh it's a natural causes so tammy was originally ruled as a natural death she died in her sleep so her body has been exhumed in order to do an autopsy, the autopsy was completed in February of this year, and then her death was ruled a homicide. So all of this has taken so long. And I think, you know, Philip, is it possible because we have so many jurisdictions? Is it possible because there are multiple states, multiple police departments? I mean, frankly, who takes the lead here? It's like Idaho has to handle the children, right? And then all these other you know is is that the possibility arizona has to handle you know her her um ex-husband husband Mm -hmm. right with the conspiracy count and then you know everything with respect to the kids of of course that's tough in terms of sometimes it's tough for you know jurisdictions to collaborate if it's the county next to your county right like in terms of getting those uh pieces together in a puzzle can be difficult but when you're talking about states spread out across the nation it makes it tough from an investigative standpoint. It makes it tough, like you're absolutely saying, from a trial standpoint in terms of who's ultimately going to try their case first, which case makes the most sense such that trying this doesn't in any way compromise an issue in the other case, say back in Idaho, if you're trying the case um, in Arizona first. There's all these practical considerations that have to come in that in many respects can complicate the process of ultimately having the matter litigated and to the extent that justice um, is, you know, what we ultimately want to come out of it, it can certainly delay the matter. Um, And for the defense, you know, just to be very frank, it can, in some respects, give the defense more ammo, right? Even when you're fighting a case, whereas you're saying, and a coincidence is a little tough to play here, to the extent that you're the defense, even think about with respect to Tammy, you have the first finding that is ultimately, you know, from the coroner's report saying that it was a natural cause of death, but then subsequently and only after kind of all of these other, you know, facts came to light via these different investigations in different jurisdictions, now her body's exhumed. And of course, now, you know, the coroner's report notes that, you know, the cause of death was homicide. And so just in certain respects, now you're giving the defense ultimately a lot of ammo to come in, at least with respect to that case, as as, as involves um, Tammy to say, well, you know, maybe she wasn't murdered, right? Like the fact that all of these other facts happened around these other states with respect to Tammy in terms of the state proving that she was murdered as opposed to the initial finding being it was natural causes, it, it, it can make things a little bit tough. And then what evidence from each state comes into each other state's trial? Because defense attorneys, of course, will always be trying to keep a lot of that stuff out, saying it's prior bad acts, it's prejudicial, it's it doesn't have any relation to what's going on in this jurisdiction. It can just, in many respects, complicate the process as much as just the facts in and of themselves are complicated. Oh, my goodness. And and you mentioned Lori's former husband. This would have been the fourth husband, Charles Vallow. Now, he died in 2019. 2019 was just a bad year to be around these two. Charles was shot to death by Lori's brother, brother. Alex Cox. And this happened in Chandler, Arizona. Alex claimed that it was self-defense. They were going through a bad divorce in the court records. He had made it clear that he believed that Lori was incompetent, that she could not take care of the children because of all of her doomsday problems, you know, that she was going to be reincarnated. And and so he basically, he said, he started at least to, to, to tell a narrative in the court record that there was something seriously wrong with his wife, you know, that that she led people to believe that there was going to be a second coming of Christ and this was going to happen in July 2020. By the way, for those who are following this, it didn't happen. Lori was wrong. Okay. Um, so what ends up happening is that police investigate that case and they're like, oh, well, you know, it's self-defense. I don't know why they bought this, but they bought that it was self-defense. And so that case is kind of put to the side. No. Before they even go back to that case, the brother, Lori's brother, Alex, my God, you need an org chart for this thing, died in December of an apparent blood clot in his lung. Now, isn't that convenient 
I'm just, again, I don't know. He may have died naturally. I have no idea. But boy, that's an awful lot of people. That's that's more people who are dying. So um, he, he was named by prosecutors as a co-conspirator in the murders of Joshua Tiley and Tammy Daybell, even though he's dead. He's been named as a co-conspirator. Now, why would authorities name a deceased person as a co-conspirator in these upcoming cases? To What value is there to that? I mean, of course, he can't be posthumously convicted in any respect, but to the extent that he is a co-conspirator, okay, his acts, okay, that may have been separate and apart from Lori's, by him now being a co-conspirator, right, and there being ultimately conspiracy charges brought against him, the kind of catch-all provision that a conspiracy charge is for any prosecuting authority is that you, now Lori, can prospectively be held responsible for your brother's acts to the extent that you're co-conspirators, right? So to the extent that ultimately he took some action within some kind of agreement or upon some agreement that you and your brother made, he then made some overt act to carry out that agreement. You necessarily now can't run from the fact that, no, that was my brother and that was his decision-making as opposed to me and like my own act. It's what ties a lot of the criminal offenses when you have a plan together. I mean, you think about it like with the mafia, right? Or with organized crime. One of the things that the federal government loves to do in terms of indicting members of these, you know, gangs or of these, you know, like mafia sets is to bring them all together under the indictment of there was a conspiracy to commit some type of act. Because now maybe the guy that rented the car to dispose of a body, right? that the person on the other side of the country can say, well, I didn't have anything to do with that. That was him that rented the car and he disposed of the body. But to the extent it was all part of the central plan, now everybody can be jointly held accountable. So in many respects, that's sometimes practically and logistically why a prosecuting authority will name people together within a conspiracy because it allows them, again, nevertheless, to be able to go after Lori for maybe something that only her brother did. Wow, that's fascinating. That's really, really fascinating since there doesn't appear to be any dispute that it was Alex who shot him. That appears to not be in dispute. Wow, that's incredible. And then there are, of course, all these other relatives who uh, were involved, meaning they were around the family at different parts of all of this playing out. My guess is that they're all filled with all sorts of information that authorities could use. Uh, one last question on on this confusing case. So let's say Idaho brings up the issue of whether Lori is competent, but Arizona's like, you know what? That's just not working here in Arizona. <laughs> we're not, we don't we don't we're not even touching that. We're going straight for this case. Does does what happened in one state in any way? It, it can't be brought into another case in another state, right? I mean, it can, you know, we kind of touched upon this a little bit earlier, but the, say, Arizona has to make a credible argument before the judge that can find some legal exception to the rules of evidence that would allow them to bring in a set of circumstances that occurred in a different state within the home state. And it's not easy to do. The prosecution would have to file a number of motions and make a number of legal arguments before the judge. And you know, the defense will be fighting like crazy to keep all of that stuff out to the extent that they would say it's irrelevant, it's prejudicial, those, you know, crimes within the other state have not been proven beyond a reasonable doubt yet, so it would be certainly prejudicial to bring them in to this case as if they are the truth. But nevertheless, it certainly can happen. If they ultimately need to kind of in trying a case tell a story to the jury that requires facts from another case in another jurisdiction to be brought in, there is a legal recognizable way to bring that in. It's just a big legal fight that has to be had because the rules of evidence generally are situated to keep those other facts out, but they can certainly be circumvented. And the fact that these two are now married to each other, Chad and Lori, so they can't be forced to testify against each other, correct? Correct. There's a marital privilege. So in regards to, you know, any of those, you know, intimate communications that they had, even to the extent that the intimacy, um, you know, involved these, you know, illicit acts, it's, it's, it's next to impossible to break that privilege. 
few mm. exceptions. Yeah. And, and and of all of the counts that they're all facing, there is one that is one of the you know, lesser counts. But I always, you know, sometimes it's the lesser count that you get them on. Um, Chad Daybell has been indicted and charged with insurance fraud related to an insurance policy he had on his wife, Tammy Daybell. And he was the beneficiary and he received those funds, which I think made it possible for them to go to Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah. Bingo. <laughs> All roads yeah. lead to Hawaii. Anyway. All roads lead to Hawaii. We will be following this case. We know you all are following this case. It's a crazy one. And I have a feeling this is going to take years. This case is going to take years. It's not going to happen anytime soon, but we'll follow it for you. Great guess. I agree. It is time now for our comment section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about. And monitoring what you all are saying is our very own Owen Michael. Welcome, Owen. Thank you, Anna. Nice to see you both. Hi, Philip. Hi, Anna. We've got uh, our comments this week. We read them all. Stop by and weigh in. Uh, we've got an update to a case we've followed closely on True Crime Daily. We've got uh, an Iowa jury found Christian Bahina Rivera guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Iowa college student Molly Tibbetts last week, who was killed. Molly was killed when she was out jogging in the summer of 2018. Her body was found weeks later in a cornfield. Sentencing will take place on July 15th. Uh, Faye L. says, glad Molly's family got some justice today. R.I.P. Molly. Abigail A. says, uh, glad the jurors are smart. Can't believe the defense tried pinning it on the boyfriend. How can they sleep at night? George B. says, uh, Iowa needs a death penalty. Uh, of course, Iowa has not had the death penalty since 1965. Uh, this case may sway some public opinion. Uh, yet, yet to be seen there. Well, didn't the defense also try to claim that it was like a group of other men? The bombshell testimony in the in the day before the the the, the case went to the jury was uh, it was uh, he testified on his own behalf and he said that two men showed up, two armed masked men showed up in his trailer when he got out of the shower. Two men were standing in his living room. They uh, basically he said that they abducted him at knife point. Um, or was it a gun? I, uh, I'll have to look at the uh, particular detail. Anyway, he claims that they uh, abducted him, made him drive around for hours. They saw her out jogging. He claims that uh, they one guy stayed in the car. The second guy got out of the car, allegedly did something with uh, Molly, threw her in his trunk, and then they both took off. Um, or they may have uh, taken the body out into the cornfield and then they took off. So needless to say, obviously the jury didn't buy this, uh, this particular story. It was kind of, it was unclear whether he was going to testify on his own behalf uh, at all, but the testimony was, uh, it was a wild story that the jury did not buy. It was a bombshell right. and it was wild, especially since there were all these other confessions that he had made himself to the police, which, of course, there were Miranda issues with. So parts of it could be presented in trial. Some of it could not. That was a very long, drawn-out procedure before right. we even got to the jury trial because of the Miranda issues, the technicality, really. But, I mean, for him to suggest that and to take the stand to tell this insane version, I mean, I'm almost thinking as, as a juror, I would be like, oh, no, you didn't. Oh, no, you're not. Okay, that's it. <laughs> I'm done with you. I mean, Philip, as a defense attorney, I suppose they had no other, you know, this, the mountain of evidence against this guy. Uh, they may have decided, like, take a swing for the fences here and just, uh, you know, throw out this uh, throw out this story. I mean, you know, obviously I wasn't there. I have no idea about this, this story itself. But uh, like we said, the jury didn't buy it. Right. I mean, Owen, just I mean, for the sake of some criminal defense attorneys out there, I, I'm sure that his attorneys were smart enough to recognize the fact that we had all these other, you know, statements in the past that it, in many respects, he admitted culpability mm -hmm. um, as far fetched ultimately as this story was. What it signals to me as someone who does a lot of criminal defense work is that these particular attorneys were just dealing with a client who wouldn't say no, who felt that he had nothing to lose, mm -hmm. who felt like if I'm going to ultimately go down, which it looks like I am based upon words that have come out of my own mouth, but I'm also sitting here throughout the course of the trial and I see the way the jury's taking in all of this evidence and that I'm pretty much already cooked. Let me just go and try to see if this works, right? Sure. So to the extent that he wants to do that, that's his Sixth Amendment constitution 
constitutional right, right? Right. He has the right to a trial. He has a right, ultimately, if he so chooses to waive his Fifth Amendment right and open his mouth and testify. And to the extent that he did, I mean, his attorneys don't want to ultimately be brought up on an ethics charge that they didn't let their client testify or be brought up on an ineffective assistance charge that they didn't let their client testify. So to the extent that ultimately he wants to move forward with that, that's absolutely his right to do so. It doesn't mean that his criminal defense attorneys were sitting at the table like, oh, yes, this is going to work. This is it. He's out of here, right? Like they were probably just there like, look. We're That's a let great you point. Take the stand so that you, you know what I mean. Just it's a, it's a, it's. They could just stop him essentially. Like exactly. if he wants to go up there and say and, and say this stuff, they can give him their best legal advice. But he can't be, you know, they can't tell him, they can't stop him physically or or in, in any other case. Exactly, wow. Owen. Both legally and ethically, they can't stop him. What a case. Well, uh, anyway, we have some closure to that, that, uh, as soon as the sentencing does get handed down, we will of course, uh, uh, update everybody across the board on that, uh, case. Uh, the next one we have is a California woman was arrested last week after allegedly punching a flight attendant on a flight from Sacramento to San Diego. Part of the altercation was recorded on another passenger's phone. The flight attendant sustained facial injuries and she ended up losing two teeth. The incident was reportedly not mask related. Dave D said, uh, how did she think this was going to go? She assaults a flight attendant and can then just go on her merry way like nothing happened. Steffi L says, why is this happening so much? In Miami, there are flight and gate attendants assaulted daily for doing their jobs. Who thinks this is okay to do? And Orphan A says, don't care what this problem was. Don't assault someone else for doing their job. I agree with that full stop. It is so hard. I mean, imagine you're on a plane, you're in the air, and someone, let's say, loses it. You have to try and and control them, keep the other passengers safe, and make sure that nothing even worse happens, which means that's why the attendants are assaulted, because you've got pilots who are flying this plane. I mean, if something goes wrong, I'll never forget this. I was on a flight once. It was an international flight. And there was this woman who would not sit down. Now, this is a very long flight. And this is a woman like, right. you could tell when they got the glazed over eyes, they got those little like, you know, mischievous, like she's somewhere else. So she would right. get up and she would go down the aisle, right? And then they'd get her, convince her to sit down. Finally, they couldn't anymore. And they tackled her. And I'm like, Oh my God, we haven't, we're like, we haven't even landed yet. We're getting close. They tackle the woman (laughs) and they restrain her, her hands. And we all have to wait because she's the first one to be taken off the plane. And she still has that glaze, like look, you know, as she's getting off that plane. I mean, it is so frightening. You know, Anna, my, my mother worked for one of the four major airlines for 25 years. And for about five of those years, she was a flight attendant and she was doing a lot of those international flights. And one of the things that she used to always tell me is that the nature of travel has just changed a lot from its heyday, say back in the 70s and 80s, when it was the life of luxury to essentially now in many respects, sometimes you're just dealing with a greyhound in the sky. And you have a lot of these passengers that take a lot of their frustrations out in terms of whatever they had to pay for their baggage check fee or however many you know minutes they had to spend on the phone with reservations to get their tickets changed. And they're coming onto the plane, like you said, just unreasonably taking it out on the flight attendants. It's, it's, it's not right. And it's, it's dangerous, frankly. We should say too, that obviously over the last uh, particular year, uh, this has been exceptional circumstances as well. And it's been extra, extra stressful, I'm sure with the pandemic restrictions and, you know, uh, masks and all the rest of the stuff. I mean, I thought it was notable, at least at this particular altercation, uh, there may have been some dispute between the woman, the flight attendant getting in, in this woman's space or something too much. It's tough to tell. Uh, I, they only captured part of it on the thing, but I thought it was we finally have one of these situations where it wasn't mask related. You see a lot of stuff these days, uh, uh, you know, video from phone video of altercations over masks, but, um, there, you know, there's no excuse. Like we've all flown, you know, how uncomfortable it is when people get rowdy and that kind of thing. I mean, one guy, one of the passengers did intercede. Thank goodness. I, it's a, I don't think he was an air marshal, but, um, you know, we all like to think that uh, we'd like everybody to behave and and, and act responsibly. But uh, unfortunately, uh, incidents like this happen. Very frightening. Well, thank you, Owen, as always. Always good to see you. We will see you back here next week. Bye, guys. See you next week. Bye, Owen. Philip, we just want to thank you so much for coming on. I learned so much this week from you. It's been a pleasure having you. 
where can people find you if they want to follow you on social media or if they need a criminal defense attorney in New York? Um, Anna, you can find me. I'm a partner at Hamilton Clark here in New York. So that's HamiltonClarkLLP.com. Uh, most of the social media platforms, including Instagram, Twitter, I'm Esquire Hamilton. Uh, and I thank you so much, Anna, for having me. It's, it's, it's certainly been a pleasure. Well, we hope that you come back. We hope that your partner, Lance, comes back. It might be fun once to have you both on at the same time. <laughs> we'll do it. We have no problem. We'd love to see you and love to spend the time. So thanks uh, so much. Absolutely. And you can all find me at Anna G News on all social media. As always, you can find our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and on YouTube. You can get updates um, to our newsletter by subscribing at truecrimedaily.com. Owen puts those together for everyone. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.